The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. This is Psalms 130, a song of ascent. Hear now the word of God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. May your ears be attentive, the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in the word, in his, in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, then more than watch me for the morning. More than watch me for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is, for, is steadfast love, with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thank you, Ezra. Well, as you can see from, um, from the outset of our psalm here, this is what the psalmist refers to as a song of ascent, which is pretty self-explanatory if you understand what that word means. It implies like a climb of some kind, or more specifically, it carries the idea of moving from some type of like valley-like location or valley-like experience to a more elevated one, to, to ascend, to have some kind of upward trajectory. And if you were to flip through the Bible, what you would find is that in the book of Psalms, you get one big cluster of these Songs of Ascents. It begins with Psalm 120, and it goes all the way through uh, Psalm 134. So there's 14 of them in all, all coming together, all of them beginning with that same opening line, a song of ascents. And in terms of their common features, here's uh, what one, how one writer described them. I, I think this is a helpful little snapshot that we get of the song, Songs of Ascent. Uh, they write this, they are a unique collection of psalms shorter than average with a distinctive folkiness that were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the great feasts. Okay, So in other words, for these Jewish worshipers, they would travel from their homes, wherever they were from, up to Jerusalem. They would do this three times a year. They would do it twice in the spring, once in the fall. Um, uh, they'd be heading on you know, what some have referred to as uh, heading to pilgrim feasts because they would they would go on pilgrimage. Um, of these feasts, one of them would be Passover, a seven day festival of remembrance. This is interesting, right? We've been talking about exercising the muscles of faith. One of the ones that we've talked about is remembrance, and this is one of the things that God's people did. Um, the, another one is Pentecost, which uh, we talked about that not all that long ago. And then the third one would be the Feast of Booths. And again. What scholars suggest is that these short psalms were sung by worshipers as they made the ascent to Jerusalem for these occasions. So you could imagine these groups of people singing. And by the way, when um, the, that, that quote I read, that little snapshot, um, when it refers to these songs as having like a, a distinctive folky quality, uh, I don't think that we're supposed to imagine like, you know, like Bob Dylan or Joan Baez, like with their guitar strapped on and harmonicas around their necks, like leading a procession of people or something like that. I love that idea, by the way. 
Um, it's a great image for me, but um, I don't think that that's the idea. I think that the idea is uh, using the word folk in its most basic meaning, which is to say that these were songs of the common people. They were the songs of the common per per person. This is what, when you, you know, get titles like folk music, folk art, that's essentially the idea behind it, that these are things for common, everyday folk like you and me, if you would consider yourself common. Um, I don't know if you would consider me common, but I, I, I do. So intended to be sung not by someone on stage in a spotlight, but by the common people, sung together uh, as a way of identifying with God in the midst of their common, everyday Lives. And so in keeping with that idea, these are short songs. They're, they're easy to memorize, you could say. They capture common human experiences, certain aspects of the common human condition that we all can relate to regardless of who we are. However, there's more to it than just that, okay? It's not, it's not just that. Um, because not only were these songs for the common people, but they were songs that were meant to fill us with great hope right? This is pilgrim music. This is music for weary travelers. I think that's a good way to think about this. This is music that is intended to carry us out of the valley-like experiences of our lives up, up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, into the dwelling place of God. And that's precisely the sort of thing that we find here in Psalm 130, I think. Uh, but here's a question. What, like, what kind of a song is this actually, specifically? What is the common human experience that we find in Psalm 130? And ultimately, if, you get, if we're going to talk in musical terms, this is a love ballad. Ultimately, that's what this is. It's a love ballad. But before we get there, it's a song about our common struggle with sin and the experience of repentance that sets us moving on that upward ascending trajectory. And one more time, I just want to encourage us this morning. If you haven't been with us in weeks past, uh, for the past, I don't know, month at, at this point, I guess, we have been just talking about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, ways to exercise our faith. And so I, I just want to encourage us in that way to be thinking about this, this concept of repentance is yet another spiritual di discipline, an exercise of faith a faith muscle that needs to be regularly and intentionally engaged. And by the way, the name of this message, in case you didn't see it at the top of your sermon page there, it's called Embracing a Life of Repentance. So just kind of get the wheels turning on that idea. Embracing a Life of Repentance. Let's think about that together. I've got an, an outline for us. If we are going to join in on this um, pilgrimage, think of ourselves as, as going on some kind of a journey together this morning, here are three stops along the way, three stops on our upward trajectory towards the temple of God. One, the path, the path of repentance. This is going to be about perspective, like how do we see our sin? How do we respond to our sin, All right? Secondly, the promise, the promise of repentance. And the question here would be, how do we see our way out of sin? All right? Three, third, lastly, the purpose. The purpose of repentance. What's the big idea of repentance? Why would we do it? Why would we embrace it? 
Okay, where is it ultimately leading us? So again, the path, the promise, and then the purpose of repentance. So to begin with the path of repentance, and we're, you know, we're just going to focus on, for this point, we're just going to focus on these first three verses that we've got here. Rather than me rereading them, can we do this? Can we just, all of us, look down at our bulletin and just take a glance at these three verses and just kind of like visually take them in. I'm not asking you to read them. Just kind of visually take them in in what stands out to you. Like, what do you see? Like, what jumps off the page as you look at these first three verses? I'll just mention a few things that immediately jumped out to me. Maybe you're seeing the same things. First off, the exclamation points stand out to me. All right? You have three consecutive statements all ending with an exclamation point followed by a question. And so without even like, you know, getting, taking in the data of like what's being said, I think that that alone tells us quite a bit, you know, some kind of big deal thing is going on with the writer. All right. So that's one thing. Here's, here's another one that jumps off the page four times in this short section. in just these, these three verses, the author says, Oh Lord, that jump out to you. Oh Lord. And I don't, I probably don't need to point this out, but like, oh Lord, this is, this is like a, a desperate sort of an address to God. Oh Lord. And to this point, the psalmist's opening line, his, this is another thing that stands out. His initiating words, right? So, so what he's, he, how he's beginning this psalm, it, it's, it's essentially informing everything that's going to follow, right? He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, Oh, Lord. So, you know, the first thing that we learn about the, the writer of this psalm is that whoever they are, and by the way, we don't know who they are, okay? But, I mean, it might be one of the psalmists that we're familiar with. Could be David, could be Asaph that we've looked at in, in weeks previous. I don't know. But whoever they are, we now know that they're in a bad way. They're in a bad way. They're crying out. And they're crying out, it says, from the depths, which I believe is a figurative, poetic sort of a a, a way of saying things. And I think it essentially says, like, I feel hopeless. I feel feel lost. I'm in the depths. I don't don't see a way out. I don't see a way out of my trouble. I'm in the depths here. In, In crying out from the depths to God. And so there, I mean, there's a lot to just be learned just from this short verse, right? Okay. Um, It's a simple thing. It's a simple thing, but a very profound and essential thing. When we feel stuck, when we feel helpless, when we feel hopeless, the first thing that we should do is cry out to God. Cry out to God for help. Like when there's a fire, you don't, you don't um, roll, drop and stop, right? You, You stop first. When we're in a bad way, step one, stop, cry out to God. Many of us are fixers here. Any fixers? Come on, there's more than three of you. You guys are in denial. Um, sorry. We, we want to just, when we have a problem, what do we want to do? We just want to fix it. We don't want to stop and talk to God about it. We don't want to cry out. We want to fix it and then maybe talk to him about it after the fact. But that's not the sequence that we find in the scriptures. Again and again, over and over again, it's always stop. If you're in trouble, stop. Cry out for help. 
Okay, but what's actually going on here? What's the situation? And again, we don't know. We don't know who it is that is writing. We don't know any specific things about their trouble. We, we do learn, if we keep reading, we do learn something general about their trouble, which in a sense is pretty specific. You'll, you'll see what I mean in a minute here. But the first clue comes in verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Okay, so reading between the lines here, what is the psalmist saying? And essentially what they're saying is, oh Lord, please don't give me the thing that I justly deserve from you. This is, this is what mercy is about. Please don't give me the thing that I justly deserve from you. When somebody wrongs you, okay, and you're totally in your rights to, you know, hold them accountable, to make them pay, if you've got the power to enforce it, if all of that's in play and yet you choose not to hold them accountable, choose not to make them pay, that's mercy. That's mercy. That's a choice to walk away, to not hold them accountable, to not make them pay. This is precisely what our psalmist is pleading with God. Please for mercy. Pleading that God might give him that he might receive it. He's asking to be shown mercy. Please, O Lord, please don't give me the thing that I justly deserve from you. And so this this makes things a lot more clear for us in terms of like, what's what's going on here? What is this psalmist crying out about? They're crying to God from the depths of their own sin. This is the kind of trouble they're in. They're in trouble that they've made for themselves. Can you relate to that? I mean, I feel like most of the trouble that I find myself in my life somehow trails back to me. You know, like I'm a troublemaker in Doug's life. Cry out when this is the case. Cry out. If you, O Lord, this this is confirming that we're on the right track with the psalmist, that this is the kind of trouble that he's in. Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So this is the common experience we're learning, right? This is the com- this struggle with sin. This is the, the folk experience that we're, we're, we're looking at here. Now, what I said earlier about some of us being fixers, I think that this is much a much more common thing than we may realize, which is why I was just like, come on, three hands, guys. Um, this is especially true, I think, when it comes to our sin. Because oftentimes, when we're faced with our own sin, our natural reactionary impulse doesn't look like the impulse of the psalmist here. Oftentimes, our initial response to our sin is to try to hide it and to then try to fix it in order to make it go away so that we don't really need to deal with it. All right? Adam and Eve. This is where it all started, right? Is this what they did? After they sinned, what do they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves in the garden. Then what do they do? They started making some clothes out of fig leaves. They tried try to fix it. Didn't work. They were trying to cover their nakedness. This reminds me of a metaphor that someone shared with me recently, that when it comes to our sin, we often come to God with it the way that we tend to come to the dentist office. You know, when you, you show up for that six-month cleanup, what do you do? What do you guys do? If you're anything like me, what you do is 
you, you try to make up for about six months of not so great flossing and you try to make up for six months in about six hours. You just start like brushing and flossing like mad and just, you know, like, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to trick this dentist. They'll have no idea you know, that I have not been following their strict prescription. Uh, yeah, but guess what? They know. I mean, it's silly, right? They know. Like, you, you show up and you've got le- these, like, swollen red gums. Um, this is, what, you know, they, they go to school for a long time, these, these people. So I, you know, they know. They can spot the neglect. This is what they do. And likewise, God knows our sin. We cannot hide it from him. And try as we might, we most certainly can't fix it. We have no remedy for our sin. You could gather up all the fig leaves on the planet and try to create some kind of a fix to cover your sin, and it won't work. And so it's silly. It's silly for us to even try. And somehow the psalmist knows this. In knowing this, the psalmist takes the path of repentance. This is the path of repentance that we're looking at in these first three verses. And there are two aspects to this that I think are very instructive to us. The first is the acknowledgement of the sin itself. Notice that the psalmist doesn't mess about with reasons. No excuses are made. No promises to do better next time to brush you know, more frequently, nothing, you know. That kind of talk is always the talk of denial when we start rationalizing our sin, when we start trying to double down and make promises that we can't keep. It fails to truly acknowledge the reality of our sin. In so many words, the psalmist is saying, I see it, and I know that you see it, God, And I have no excuses, I've got no justifications, and my only hope in this situation is that you might show me mercy. And so I'm crying out to you from the depths, and I'm asking you, please have mercy on me. The second thing that's so helpful and instructive about what the psalmist is saying here comes in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So often, you know, when we feel the weight and the shame and the guilt of our sin, our tendency is to think that somehow we're unique, that we're the only ones who are having these kinds of experiences, that we're like the one black sheep that just can't get it together. But the psalmist realizes that this is a common dilemma. This is a folk dilemma. This is a dilemma that only God can remedy. And in this way, the psalmist essentially sees the plight of all of humanity. Whoever this is, they've really got insight that our problem isn't that we just behave badly from time to time, but there's this inherent fault line that is running through the foundation of our lives, running through our connection to the one who made us. I think that this song really lays bare the fact that when we treat sin as though it's just merely some kind of like moral misstep, that it, what that t- should tell us when we see it that way is that we're just not seeing things clearly. We're not understanding what repentance is about. We're actually minimizing it when we see it that way. And the way that we see it is in the way that the psalmist is so deeply relational. This is how we see what it's really about, is by paying attention to the language of the psalmist is there on the path of repentance. 
What's he doing? He's crying out to God. This isn't an apology for a moral misstep. Crying out to God saying, oh Lord, oh Lord, hear my voice. Please open your ears. Hear me. These are the kinds of things that we say to those that we're most intimate with. When we feel desperate that like we need to somehow mend something that's been relationally broken. This is how they're talking as though some kind of relational breach has taken place. And in terms of this being like such a relational matter rather than a mere behavioral misstep, what the psalmist ultimately does is appeal to what? What is the psalmist appealing to? He's appealing to the kindness and love of God. He's looking to God to mend that fault line, to repair that breach. This brings us into our second point, the promise of repentance. What is in, what's inspiring the psalmist to do this, to cry out, to plead with God in the way that he is? Please look back with me at verses three and four again here. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So, you know, coming back to this image of pilgrimage, you know, you can almost imagine at this point, like someone slowly making their way, trudging along out of the lowlands, out of the valley, reaching some kind of crest. And then as we come into verse four there, it's like the whole tone of the song has changed. Like there's been some kind of bridge the song has is, is gone from like minor chords to like major nice chords. What's changed? What's changed? Here's what's changed. The psalmist has shifted gears. You guys remember this? We've talked about this in weeks past. They've shifted gears. They've laid bare their soul. They've owned their sin. They've, they've poured it out. He's expressed his desire for mercy. And now coming into verse four, what does he do? He begins to talk to God about God. Do you remember this? He begins to talk to God about God and he appeals to God according to who he knows God to be. I'm in a terrible jam. All of humanity is in a terrible jam. However, there's hope because you, O Lord, with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And I'll just kind of like make a little note about this just in case you get snagged on that little phrase there that you might be feared. What is this talking about? The idea here isn't some kind of like untrusting, paralyzing fear. Rather than that, what's being implied is a kind of relational reverence. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner put it like this. This means reverence and implies relationship. Servile fear would have been diminished, not increased by forgiveness. Do you see, you see what he's saying? In other words, God's, God provides forgiveness in order to enhance a dynamic of trust and of relational reverence. Not to break it down, he's intending to deepen bonds in his kindness to us, in his forgiveness to us, not to break it down. And then to build on this, notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. He's now appealing to others. He's telling them what he, he's learned, what, he's, what he knows. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Please notice what isn't happening here. 
The psalmist isn't appealing to God for mercy based upon anything to do with himself. The only commentary that he has to give about himself is that he's a sinner in need of mercy. So he's, he, I mean, in a sense, he's like what? Hey, doc. He's not doing this. That's what I'm trying to say. He's not, he's not like, hey, doc, how about you give me a golden crown for my rotten tooth? Because, you know, I've been brushing after every meal. You know, I've really been, I've been reforming my ways. I finally started to use that electric toothbrush that you've been talking to me about for years. I bought it then, but I just started using it. You know, I've stopped, you know, eating all these concentrated sweets. No more raisins for me, doc. Can I get that golden crown now? No. It's dead silence on the part of the psalmist as it relates to himself. Instead, he is is 100% appealing to God on the basis of who he knows God to be. Please have mercy on me, God, because it's in your nature to act in these kinds of ways. With you, there's forgiveness. With you, there's steadfast love. With you, there's plentiful redemption. Your love never fails. It's abundant. It's overflowing. And so would you have mercy on me, God? Would you do this? This is why and how we can come boldly to God and boldly repent for our, our sin. Even the most humiliating, even the most blushing sins, we can come boldly to him. Look at Psalm 103 for a moment that we've got printed here. Look, start in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great. I mean, just what is he saying? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the promise of repentance, that his ear is attentive to our cries to our pleas for mercy, and that his heart is kind, his heart is compassionate, even in the face of our most blushing sins. So we, we have to ask the question at this point, like how, how can this be the case? How can this be true? When we reach the pinnacle of our psalm in verses 7 and 8, you know, we're imagining ourselves, right? We're on this pilgrimage. We're, we're like, you know, beginning to approach the doors of the temple. How is it that the psalmist can say what he's saying in verse 7 and 8? How can he be so confident in telling his people to have hope? Hey, have hope. To expect plentiful redemption and forgiveness for all of their sins. These are these big emphatic statements. And what we learn as we come into the New Testament is that this is only possible because of Jesus. The psalmist is, is seeing the eventuality of this, somehow, some way. Listen to Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. What does that sound like? plentiful redemption through Jesus. 
Now we've considered the path of repentance. We've considered the promise of repentance. But what is the purpose of repentance? What's the purpose? So our last point. Please look back at with me at verses four through six. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, we've already, we've talked about this. So I'm just repeating myself, really. But the purpose of repentance is him. To be redeemed means to be bought back, to be purchased back. If you've ever redeemed a prize, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you turn in your little ticket, you get your prize. When Jesus redeems us from our sin, he is restoring us to our original purpose, which is to live in uninterrupted, unspoiled connection, fellowship with him. And in this waiting that is expressed in in, in these verses that I just read here, you can hear like a a kind of childlike trust. Like I'm just, I'm waiting. I'm just going to wait. I'm waiting on you. As we experience the mending and the restoration and the relief that comes through repentance, it develops in us this kind of patient, trusting disposition, a posture that keeps opening up like a child with their compassionate father, keeps returning, keeps waiting, keeps trusting, keeps getting turned around again and again to him. Relational reverence. It's about living in loving connection with him. And so this is why we need to embrace a life of repentance because it's good. It's good for us. It's a good spiritual exercise. Repentance is a gift that God has given us, a place of re-entry. It's a bridge that we can't burn down that he's provided for us. Now, what might that look like in our lives? Like practically speaking, this is, this is a good question. We talked about this a little bit last week. This is a question that came up in some discussions last night. How do we, how do we, how do we make this a regular practice? I actually want to read something for you. I think I left this book over here. Whew. I thought I lost it. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be interesting. Um, this is Every Moment Holy, Volume 1. These are, are lit- liturgies for everyday life, for common life, for, for, for folks. All right? um, I wanted to read the one on home repairs. Uh, I have a couple of confessions here. I've got a lot of home repairs that need done. Um, when I think about it, I get very overwhelmed at the very thought of it. Um, I get irritable when I think about it. Um, Grumpy, maybe even angry at times. And reading this was very reorienting for me. All right. Not only that, but some of us are gathering today to do some home repairs together. So this is going to be very informative and instructive for us. And it's interesting the direction that this goes in. So if you're wondering, like, what in the world does this have to do with embracing a life of repentance? Just listen, okay? For the blessing of this dwelling, O Lord, this is the attitude I'm I'm asking God to give me. For the blessing of this dwelling, O Lord, for the fast foundation, 
For the roof stretched overhead is a sheltering canopy. For the luxury and security of windows and doors. For these strong walls, staying wind and weather. For comforts of floor and furniture, of heating and cooling, of fresh running water and electrical wiring. For all fixtures, (laughs) appliances, and conveniences that make our lives here less toilsome. We give you thanks, O Lord acknowledging that all provision is your provision. This place is a gift. The sharing of life with these walls is a gift. And so the necessary investment of time and resources toward the maintenance and repair of this dwelling need not be regarded as a burden, but as a good stewardship and a glad opportunity. Give grace, therefore, (laughs) that I might now perform the task before me, not in grudging irritation, but in gentleness and generosity of spirit as a caretaker of your blessings and as an act of loving service to all family, friends, or strangers who will shelter here or enjoy fellowship beneath this roof. In the midst of these labors, this is where we we begin to hear something new. In the midst of these labors, grant me practical wisdom to perceive problems, imagination, to consider their solutions and skill to remedy them. Give me also humility and discernment that I might know when a task is beyond my ability and ask for help. Guide my hands in these endeavors, O Lord, and yet even more, I pray that you would shape my heart in the doing of them, that as I labor to repair this dwelling, You would be ever at work within me. Your spirit revealing and repairing my own places of brokenness. Ungratefulness, shame and pride. And so making me an ever more fit habitation for the indwelling of Christ. And a truer citizen of the coming kingdom. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional about home repairs right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think you know why. This is, what it, this is what it sounds like to embrace a life of repentance. That as we look out, we see, it's just like, man, like the psalmist. I see it, you see it, God. It's in all humanity, the brokenness is everywhere. Do repairs, God. Do repairs and begin here. Begin with me. Change my heart, oh God. This is what it looks like to embrace a life of repentance. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us could stand, Lord. And so we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ stood in our place that he bore the sentence for our iniquities, that he bore the shame that was ours. And we pray that by his stripes we might be healed. We pray that you would mend us, that you would mend all of the fault lines that run through our lives. Pray that you would give us sure confidence in the true foundation that rests beneath our feet as we and trust ourselves to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his good name that we pray these things. Amen.